Well, good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you all today. I'd first like to welcome those of you who are first-timers or relatively new to our church, or for the first time joining online. I just want to say that we're so glad that you're here. And for those of you who are regulars, we're really glad you're here, too. You always get left out, you know? And for those of you who don't know me or you need a refresher, my name is Denzel Ballram, and I'm a delegate for our Free Methodist Church here in Santa Barbara. And while I was previously on the road to ordination, I've since paused that due to COVID, my busy day job, having a little bundle of joy named Emery, who's probably running around here with fistfuls of Cheerios. In our home, my wife, Shannon, and I both try to continue our learnings from our degrees in theology. This is like 14 years ago. We just want to extend the half-life of those degrees as long as we can. And you see, Jesus and the church, they are passions of ours. And so being a part of this church, helping with our hands and feet and sometimes our voices, are great joys to us. But one of the ways that we practice our learnings is trying to be intentional with reflecting on the church service. When we leave church, we get into our car, and one of us comments, well, that was a good word. What did you think? And to be fair, it's always Shannon who asks, well, that was a good word. What did you think? And my inarticulate first draft response is usually, good. She's gotten used to it by now. You see, I have one of those personalities, one of those brains, where it can take a while for me to digest my experiences and then form a cogent response. But part of that digestion is stalled because usually I'm hung up on one of two extremes. I'm either thinking of what a great job the preacher did that morning, how they extracted such convicting truth from the passage of scripture they preached from, or I'm thinking of the text and my own observations in there that hit home for me and that may have only been tangentially explored by the preacher. And sometimes when my response to Shannon is more thought out, it goes something like this. Well, I thought that Colleen, Doug, Danielle, Nikki, Jake, AKA the preacher, really hit a home run when they talked about fill in the blank. I loved how they connected those dots. Their analogies really helped to clarify the passage. And the quotes they use support my mental construct of how this passage is shaped. And lately in my heart, these are the things I've been dealing with. And here's where I feel the Lord wants me to be better. But I also started thinking about how this passage leads to this other passage, which kind of made me think about this song. And then I thought about the prayer list and the volunteer opportunities. And I really want to love God and love others better. But man, lunch sounds so good. <laughs> and man, she doesn't know what to do with that answer. <laughs> Sometimes it's easier just to say, good. <laughs> when I started writing today's sermon, I panicked a little bit. It struck me as a confusing passage, to say the least. When Shannon was preparing for her sermon last week and I was doing research on mine, I asked if she had read today's passage. And she said, I did. Good luck. Which in this context is better translated as blessings on you. But she was very affirmative and she said, you got this. And so I thought about those conversations in the car ride home from church. And I wondered, as the preacher, 
what kind of conversation would I want to have around the Sunday morning worship experience today? And around this sermon in particular? Well, I settled on a sermon's favorite number, three. Three things I want to communicate today, and we'll let the car conversations happen as they will. The first thing is we're going to summarize Hebrews up to this point, so we have a, an understanding of what the letter is about. The second is that how that understanding leads to an understanding of this passage. And third, we'll look at what encouragement and challenges the passage has for us today. Last week I told Doug, Maddie, and David, it's usually the case that passages like this tend to be the most rich in its application. And while I hope that you agree, and I hope that, that the Lord speaks to you today. Allow me to pray for us, and let's dive in. Lord, under this tent and online, we know that better is one day in your presence than thousands elsewhere. We're already encouraged by our time together in worship, and I pray your spirit guides our hearts today. Please guide me as I teach and guide those who listen as we spend time learning from your word. May our hearts be open to what you have to say to us and help us love you and one another more deeply. Amen. So back in January, we started the series, and so we've been in it for about eight months. So this overview is going to be pretty quick. The book of Hebrews was addressed to a Christian community whose faith was faltering because of strong Jewish influences. And in order to fortify Christian beliefs, in order to get the readers of the letter to understand why Jesus is better, the author spends 10 chapters comparing the Old Covenant to the New. This means he spends time describing why Jesus is better than angels, better than Moses, better than priests, and why his sacrifice of atonement is perfect and better than the daily or yearly ones they're used to. In these chapters are woven encouragements and warnings, warnings refusing, for refusing to follow, obey, or recognize the Christian faith and continuing in a life of sin, and encouragements like what it means to live in faith and service through persecution, and having a great host of witnesses cheering the readers on to run the race set before them with their eyes fixed on Jesus. And so last week, my beautiful wife, Shannon, preached about Esau, someone who had no faith in God and no regard for his birthright, his promise of a spiritual blessing. Consequently, he exchanged his spiritual birthright for a bowl of stew, a decision he couldn't reverse when he'd realized what he'd done. And so now with the knowledge of patterns and warnings and the story of Esau in mind, Let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12, or bulletin page 4. Before reading, I'll first outline the three parts of this passage. I think it'll make it a little bit more clear. In verse 18 to 24, the passage is comparing two mountains. Verse 18 to 21 refer to how the Old Covenant was given at Mount Sinai, and in 22 to 24, it refers to the promise of a new covenant and a life in the heavenly Jerusalem, otherwise known as Mount Zion. And verse 25 to 29 continue with a warning about listening to Jesus and an encouragement, a reinforcement of the promise of the kingdom we'll receive 
if we run our race well. So let's start with verse 18. You have not come to something that can be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that not another word be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even an animal touches the mountain, it shall be stoned to death. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse the one who is speaking for if they did not escape when they refused the one who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject the one who warns from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he's promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of what is shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. And therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us give thanks by which we offer to God an acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The word of the Lord. Amen. So let's begin by noting a few observations, and if that was clear to you, we should switch places. <laughs> so like I mentioned, the comparison here is of Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Mount Sinai was the place where Moses and the Israelites received the old covenant. When the Israelites came to the mountain, God descended on it, and there was a burning fire and dark clouds, a whirlwind, earthquakes, and a trumpet blast that was meant to inspire reverence and awe. And that would encourage obedience to God's commands, but instead, it just terrified them. The mountain was so holy because of the proximity to God that it couldn't be touched. What added to their fear was the warning that even if an innocent animal touched the mountain, it had to be stoned. Like if an an innocent animal had to die, what does that mean for men who sin willfully? Even Moses, who became the mediator of the old covenant, was fearful. But of course, in spite of the scene that was designed to inspire the Israelites to faith and obedience, these manifestations of God's power and holiness didn't produce long-lasting faith and obedience. The author of Hebrews is pointing out that Hebrew Christians don't need to have faith in that kind of physical thing, in that kind of spectacular or sensational event, because their faith is unseen. They have come to Mount Zion. Throughout the scriptures, Mount Zion it's kind of a confusing thing because it's both physical and spiritual. It's a place, a real place near Jerusalem, the city of David. It's also referred to as the city of God and the location of Christ's rule on earth in the end times. And it's a spiritual location 
and an eternal Jerusalem. In this passage, it's that latter definition that's being used. This is a heavenly city. It's a heavenly Jerusalem where there will be countless angels and an assembly of the firstborn. So like, what does that mean? Well, those are people who are called sons and daughters of God. Those are people who, unlike Esau, believed in God and didn't give up what was promised to them. If you and I persevere in the faith, we'll join in that assembly. And so next, God is listed here explicitly as the judge of all. And why is that? Well, I think the revelation of God at Mount Sinai highlighted his holiness, which prompted the Israelites to shrink back in fear. But at Mount Zion, in God's judgment, all of the spirits of the righteous are indeed righteous because the requirement of holiness has been satisfied by the sacrifice of his son. And lastly, we read that at Mount Zion, we come to Jesus, who is the mediator of the new covenant. And thus his sprinkled blood speaks of far better things than the blood of Abel. Well, what does this mean? In Genesis 4, we read, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? And he replied, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? But the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Abel's blood cried out for vengeance. It cried out for justice. How different is the sprinkled blood of Jesus? Well, it doesn't it doesn't cry out for justice. It provides justice. And it provides healing and newness, a new righteousness, a robe of righteousness and hope. It covers the sin of all who claim it for salvation. This is the better word than the blood of Abel. So to summarize, the author's reference to Mount Sinai represent the former ways of doing things, imperfect, terrible, alarming. In the latter, everything is fine and alluring. Heaven is open to those who have faith. Faith is not by sight, but it gives sight. And with that sight, we survey Mount Zion, the new Jerusalem, the angels, the redeemed, the blessed God, the glorious mediator. And we start to feel that blessed abode as home. Also next in verses 25 to 29, we have that pattern of warning and encouragement. So here's the warning. The author strongly urges the readers not to respond as the Israelites did at Mount Sinai. Instead, we should respond to those who've come to Mount Zion. We are to hear and to heed what God has spoken through his son. And if God dealt severely with those Israelites for rejecting the warnings God uttered from Mount Sinai, how much greater will the consequences be for rejecting Jesus who warns us from heaven? But here's the encouragement. At Mount Sinai, God's voice shook the earth under the Israelites' feet. But this verse reminds us there'll be one more shaking. And this shaking is total, it's final and as prophesied by Haggai, promised. And this shaking will remove all the things that are created, earth and heaven. And what will be left? Well, that's the encouragement. 
So let's read it one more time. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us give thanks by which we offer to God an acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For indeed, our God is a consuming fire. We are receiving a promise from God that a kingdom more magnificent than the present heaven and earth will be given to us. And so if our kingdom, Mount Zion, is a greater kingdom with greater glory and it is unshakable, then the readers of this book and you and I should not be so easily shaken by the trials and tribulations of our day or the greater difficulties that's to come. And so we should give thanks to God with reverence, worship, and awe. Before, what was physical and spectacular was meant to inspire worship, reverence, and awe. But now because of the new covenant, if the readers of this epistle have enduring faith in Jesus, if you and I have enduring faith in Jesus, knowing that an unshakable kingdom in our, is our promise, worship, reverence, and awe are responses of our heart to God. The author of Hebrews reminds us in today's passage that seeing isn't necessarily believing, that believing is seeing. The spectacular and the sensational, they don't strengthen our faith. It doesn't produce as much endurance as suffering does. And that's why the readers are encouraged to endure their afflictions as divine discipline. For those of us who believe in Jesus and we're running the race, being certain of an unshakable kingdom gives Christians the basis for an unshakable faith, even in the midst of difficult days. Our stability and our security doesn't rest upon those spectacular events but on the assurance that we have an unshakable kingdom reserved for us in heaven. And this is based upon the word and the work of our God in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. So I'll close with this. The last 17 months or so have been incredibly difficult for a lot of us. How are you doing? I bet we could fill like all the appointment slots of all the therapists in Santa Barbara. <laughs> How's the rat race you're running? How are you feeling? Is it overwhelming? Are you able to manage it well? How's, how's it going? Well, how's the spiritual race that you're running? What does your relationship with the Lord look like right now? What do you want it to look like? What's preventing you from achieving that? And how are your connections with others in the faith? Finding time for self, family, friends, the Lord, and other Christian friends gets pretty difficult but are you being encouraged? Are you finding the space and time to encourage others? Or are you finding that pretty difficult too?
As I was praying over the sermon and you all today, I think some of you feel like you're unqualified to continue running the race. You've lost sight of Jesus. You might feel broken. And you think that brokenness has disqualified you. And you've been putting faith in hoping that something spectacular or sensational is going to get you back on track. And it's going to bring you back into right standing with the Lord. But can I tell you, Jesus came fully human and fully divine to make a way for you because he loves you. He laid down his life for you because he loves you. And he was resurrected because he loves you. He wants to let you know you're not disqualified. He wants to let you know he's run the race and he's won. <laughs> and you win because he has won. Keep your eyes on him and join him and other firstborns in the unshakable kingdom that is to come. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.